You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. Before we get started on the podcast, I just wanted to come to you guys with a special offer. I teamed up with HuntWise, the makers of the HuntWise app. They make a digital mapping software application for hunters. It allows you to tell the borders of public and private lands, who owns that land, how much land is there. Um, it's great for scouting, you know, new WMAs or public parcels, as well as using the offline features to be hunting deep in the backcountry. And what's best is we have a special offer for listeners of this podcast. If you go to www.huntwise.com and use code HAP10 at checkout, you will get 10% off of the app. Once again, that's code HAP10 at www.huntwise.com. Now let's get to the episode. This week on the podcast, I'm joined by Lan Tani. He is the CEO of the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Uh, Lan, why don't you just start out by giving um, the listener just a little bit of context into what you do and what BHA is? Yeah, so uh, thanks again, Christian, for having me. But uh, So Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, we were formed around a campfire in 2004. You know, every good thing has always been solved around a campfire um, <laughs> late at night. And uh, really, we, they look to the playing field of all the you know, organizations that are out there that are doing amazing work, whether that's Trout Limited, the Mule Deer Foundation, Pheasants Forever, the Elk Foundation. Um, and, but nobody's really focused on public lands and public waters. And so they, fo- they formed this organization to be the voice for our wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. And what that basically means is making sure you have access to our public lands and waters and then the fish and wildlife habitat when you get there. I think that quality... Fish and wildlife habitat is a, is a super important piece of it. You know, we could have access to this parking lot outside, but, you know, that's not a place where I want to go hunt and fish. It's not a place where wildlife is necessarily going to live. So, um, you know, we've grown from, you know, 1,000 members, which we had for about 10 years, to now we're busting at almost 37,000 members. We've got chapters in every single state besides five. Um, we've got a great chapter in Texas that continues to do a bunch of work. And so, you know, we... What's different about us is we really work more on advocacy and education than we do on, uh, like, you know, uh, buying habitat, I would say. Um, yeah. We're starting to do a lot more on-the-ground projects, you know, that range from, like, you know, picking up trash to putting in gates um, to, uh, you know, riparian zone kind of uh, plantings. But the majority of what we do is really at a, you know, either at a, you know, Fish and Game Commission level, at a state level, at a state legislative level, or out in Washington, D.C., you know, with our federally elected officials and then also administrative officials. And so, again, just trying to make sure you have access to public lands and waters and efficient wildlife habitat when you get there. That's awesome. Yeah, you guys definitely have a lot of, a lot of cool stuff going on. So, I mean, well, thank you. a big, and I, you, you may not have, um, a lot of insight into this, but a big issue, um, for the Austin chapter, and I'm not involved in the chapter yet. I just moved here a few weeks ago, but I'm looking forward to getting involved with the Texas chapter of BHA, but we don't have a lot of public land in central Texas. So 
what are what are organizations like this or and I know you guys are protecting and I would assume at some point would like to help advance and get more public land. Um, so what what are some things that we could be doing, you know, to to help get more public land in places that don't have as much? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Texas is they're one of the, you know, it's one of the states that have not much public land. I think it's like two percent or less yeah. public land, the state land as well. Now, with Texas being a large state, you know, that 2% is a lot bigger than, you know, Iowa's 1%. Um, but, you know, the I think you, know, you guys have an amazing stream access law there, which allows you to not only fish, but to waterfowl hunt. And so I think that's something that, one, that you should all recognize and then also, you know, fight to protect. Um, I think on the, the, the kind of growing the estate piece, you know, and just to make sure that anybody listening, this is not, you know, takeover of private land this is willing seller willing buyer but we just got some legislation passed this last year currently reauthorized the land and water conservation fund which is the number one access tool in this country it basically helps um either you know buy uh, additional landscapes and or get access to existing public land that is difficult to access and so um working on that out in washington dc you know every single state has benefited from that and, and so that's a way to kind of grow the estate. And so I think there's things that, you know, sometimes you wonder how it translates on the ground. You know, that, this, all the stuff that happens out in D.C., this is land and water conservation fund is definitely one of those. Yeah. Um, and, and, it's, and it's had impacts in Texas. So um, that's where I would say. And I think then also working, you know, I think with the, with the state, you know, there's a lot of states that have um, public access to private land programs. I think, and I'm not sure if that, if you guys have that in Texas or not. Do you, do you know that? So I'm, I don't think we have that particularly in Texas, but I'm from Oklahoma. And what we did have in Oklahoma yep. was a, a, a plan called OLAP, Oklahoma yep. Land Access Program. So, you know, private owners subsidized. People get to go in, you know, turkey hunt, which is super cool because I don't. I know you're familiar with Onyx and all those mapping software just because like a lot of those yep. things are so recent, they're not even updated on Onyx. And so like there's all these places you can walk in and hunt that, you know, might have been private the year before that literally just have signs on them. And you're just like walk in area, bow only or, you know, like all this stuff. So, it, I mean, it's it's growing in Oklahoma and I would just love to see some of that come into Texas, you know. Right. Absolutely. And I, you know, and I think that, you know, there's, you know, Oklahoma, Montana, Iowa, um, Idaho, North Dakota, South Dakota, I mean, Wyoming, there's plenty of states that have programs. And I think, you know, it'd be interesting to see how you could tailor make that to Texas. And again, this isn't, you know, people taking over, you know, private land. It's, it's willing, you know, it's a willing landowner who says, Hey, I, I don't, you know, I'd like to have some folks on my, on my land hunting and, you know, give me a little scratch and I'll be all right. You know, paying for the kind of the impacts of those people on the ground. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a great win-win and, you know, in a state like Texas, it is dominated by private land as a way for, you know, to get the kind of average man and woman out on the ground um, who maybe don't have the money, you know, to pay for a lease or don't know somebody that, you know, has a uh, private land. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's just such a, <clears throat> something we need to focus on so much because, I mean, I know there's a lot of people in central Texas that, that want to hunt. And I, I think, you know, as well as I do that just a South Texas lease is really coveted, but with that comes dude. I mean, like $5,000 and up for a lease that you right. can take one, one buck off of. And it's like, that's just for the average person. It's just undoable. And something, something cool that I learned the other day, having someone on the podcast that is that 
Texas has 13 million acres in the general land office. And most of it is in West Texas in prime mule deer country. And so, I mean, that's something I would love to see Texas tap into as well. That's awesome. And I think, and that's something like, again, for the, I'm not real familiar with that issue, but I think that's something again that, you know, when, when we form chapters, like we just did up in Oklahoma, you know, it's like, like people's voices, you know, I think individual voices count, but once you have a chapter, you know, that, that voice just kind of gets elevated and that becomes more and more of a megaphone. So I think having those conversations about those 13 million acres becomes a much different story. And so, you know, I would encourage you to you know talk to the chapter about, you know, kind of ways to engage in that process. Yeah. No, I think that's a great idea. So what have, uh, what have been some of the biggest, you know, conservation wins that you've got to be a part of, you know, in the last, I think you said in 2004, so 15 years that you've been doing this, what's been the biggest ones for you? Yeah. You know, I like, so I've, I just started with this organization six years ago. Okay. Um, you know, that I was an early adopter, became a member early, but I've been working on the conservation field for like 20 years. Um, and so there's, I've seen, you know, Sometimes, especially when you're working on policy, you know, these wins come few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, you know, we've had, I think, some fairly big ones um, in, the, in just the last little bit. And I think, you know, I talked about the Land and Water Conservation Fund being currently authorized this last year. That was part of a larger public lands package that was like 700 pages long, um, had all sorts of awesome public land stuff that's like specific to kind of a state level. And, and so that was awesome to work on, I think. Besides kind of the substance of what was in that bill, what was really awesome is the bipartisan nature that it was passed. Um, in the Senate, it passed 92 to 8, and then uh, in the House, it passed 363 to 62. And so those are overwhelming, you know, majorities, veto-proof majorities, actually. Um, but the, the, the really, you know, in this country, when people seem to be at odds over every single issue, you know, public lands is a place where they came together. And I think mm-hmm. that not only I think was great for what happened there, but, you know, it speaks well to the future. So I'd say that was a huge, huge, huge win. Um, I think, you know, besides that, you know, last last year, uh, there's, you know, there's these catastrophic kind of fires that happen every year in the West. And uh, they've been sucking the budget drive, the Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, who are primary kind of agencies that manage our public lands. And and so when that when their uh, budgets are, are sucked dry, then they can't do wildlife habitat improvements. They can't do you know they can't do road maintenance. They can't do other access projects. Can't do wildlife studies. And so we're basically able to work, you know, make it so fires are treated just like any other natural disaster. So like tornadoes, floods hurricanes and so that money doesn't come directly out of the bureau of land management and forest service budgets um that won't take effect till 2020 so next year but that as far as i think it's a huge game changer as far as kind of that loud sucking noise that was happening into budgets um one that i would say is probably the biggest one of my career that didn't happen at bha um but was around uh, the mississippi river delta and mississippi river delta you know it's, it's one of the largest deltas in the world that houses 70% of the, the waterfowl population in this country. And uh, you know, it's a great nursery for fish, you know, especially redfish and, and speckled trout. And that marsh has been dying every, you know, ever since the 1920s. And I think at, like every hour there's like a football field of marsh that's been lost. Um, you know, that it's decreased by I think the size of Delaware since the 1920s. And so here's this great resource that's kind of falling apart. And, you know, there's a lot of 
push to try to like find money to help save this, but you know we didn't, as a country, didn't have the money to be able to spend on it. And then the, you know, the unfortunate Deepwater Horizon oil spill happens, and and uh, you get a bunch of Clean Act, Clean Water Act penalties um, that originally were going to go to just the general treasury. And I worked with a lot of folks down in Louisiana and across the country to make sure that those those funds are actually used for restoration. And so now. Finally, that money is starting to hit the ground in Louisiana, and you know, and they're going to create these diversions off the off the river, so they can help grow marsh rather than having to die all the time. So that's that's that was eighteen billion dollars, oh, wow. which is I think the largest ever kind of payout for conservation. Um, Senator Baucus from Montana was the chairman of the finance committee at that point, and so we were able to kind of play between his office and Senator Landry's office from uh, Louisiana and kind of work out a deal. In all things of the in the transportation bill, but uh, got a big win there and, and eighteen billion dollars, you know, back for conservation, which is pretty cool. No, that's that's incredible. I mean, what so what did this transition look like um, for you? And I mean, why did you really want to go be you know basically the face and the CEO of BHA? Why was that appealing to you? I'm still asking myself that, Christian. I'm <laughs> um, you know, I think. So I've been kind of doing this work for almost 15 years. One started with the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and then later with the National Wildlife Federation. And so I've been around a lot of campaigns and building organizations, but had really never done it you know, myself. I kind of been support behind that. And so you know, the attraction to, one, go to help build something, two, to an organization that's just my sweet spot. You know, I grew up on public land and public waters and have a deep connection to them and want to make sure that they're there for my kids. And so it really hits my sweet spot there. Um, and then, you know, I think just working with the people. You know, I'd, I'd known I was an early adopter, become a, a member early on. So I knew a lot of the folks that were part of leadership as far as um, within the board and, and some of the state chapters. But when I took over, you know, it was a thousand people and, and a budget of half a million dollars and, and you know, just a couple staff. And that was scary. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that, you know, retrospectively, I look back at it and I'm just like the best decision I've made. It's, it's challenged my brain. Um, and, you know, now, you know, six years later, almost, like, I guess it was six years last month, you know, we've got 36,000 members across the country. I told you about all the chapters and, you know, really starting to kind of move the needle on conservation and, and in particular on public lands and public waters. And so um, exciting, exciting ride. But I'd say the best part is the people. And I think that's really what convinced me that this was, you know, kind of the ship that I wanted to jump on um, was, was really the people I get to work with every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I saw that you guys was looking at your, um, I don't know what you call it, your basically the year end overview and I saw that you guys had a budget of $4 million that you'd brought in last yep. year. That's, I mean, that's just in six years. That's awesome. I mean, so, I mean, what does that look like as far as bringing money towards this cause? Is it, you know, companies backing you guys, people donating, yep. memberships? What does that look like? Yeah, so uh, when I first started, you know, our, our, our funding really was uh, from a couple foundations. Um, I just saw the kind of, the potential, I guess, for the organization. And so they were, I'd say, these are round numbers, but I'd say that was about like around 90% of the funding. Um, today, we still get money from foundations that like, that's much more diverse than just two. Um, so plenty of kind of foundations that just you know, like the work that we're doing. And so that's about half of where we get our money from. 
and then the other kind of 50% comes from about equal parts of membership, uh, corporate partners that you mentioned, and we have you know the who's who of kind of corporate partners, um, Yeti, you know to. Light to you know Under Armour to Filson. I mean, it's just, I could list all of our corporate partners, but and then it goes into kind of uh, merchandise. You know, where our merchandise is always thought I that looked I look at merchandise as marketing, but it's actually starting to be an income mm-hmm. for us. Um, events. You know, we just had our big, huge uh, rendezvous. It's our big gathering that everybody comes to a year, but we have events all over the country every single night. Um, and then uh, and then. Like the last piece is kind of like this, uh, just like donors, like individual donors. And so that kind of makes up that 50%, which makes us, you know, much more diverse and our ability to, you know, kind of weather any storms that might be out there. Yeah. And that's great. I mean, so you talked a little bit about your events that you guys are doing. And I'm not, um, I'm, I assume that's on a national level and I'm not super familiar with that. So I'm just wondering, besides a local chapter, someone getting involved um, on a local basis in their state and, how else, like, could you explain a little bit more how someone could get involved maybe in a national level? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways to do that. I think, you know, we did had our largest fly-in ever out to Washington, D.C. last year. We brought, you know, just over 30 people out to D.C. to go have meetings, you know, with their elected officials. And that was all around the Land and Water Conservation Fund, I think, very well-timed and, and very effective. So that's probably like the, like that's one of the biggest chunks, I would say. Um, I would, you know, everybody's got a voice. And, and I think, you know, some people think that their voice doesn't count in this country anymore. And I think that's exactly right if you don't use your voice. Um, it's super important that, you know, you voice your opinion. And while, you know, we the masses might not have the money, uh, we definitely have, the you know, the, the voice if we collectively use it. And so... An example of that would be when Congressman Chaffetz from uh, Utah proposed to sell three million acres of public land, uh, I think it was three years ago. And, and the rallying cry went out and people picked up the phone, you know, they contacted him on social media. Um, and lo and behold, you know, a week later, since there was such a backlash, he came out and rescinded his kind of proposal. And I've, I haven't seen that happen in you know, the 20 years that I've been working in this mm-hmm. field. And so... That was done by the people. Um, I would say the same thing. You know, I talked about our flying that we did last spring around the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Well, that fund sunsetted uh, last September, September 30th, and the outcry from the people was just like, "Man, we just can't have that. This is the number one access tool. You know, access is the number one reason why people don't take up hunting and fishing, or they give it up." Or I guess the lack of access is, and so um, you know, this, this is a vital, vital tool that we need, and and so the. the Outcry was pretty pretty swift and uh, pretty robust, and you know it, it was one of the first things they undertook after they came back after the shutdown, um, after the first of the year. And so the people made that happen. You know, I don't think you know. Well, I, I I have a lot of admiration for many of our elected officials. You know, I think it's the pressure from their constituents that really helps them make decisions on things. And so that's the voice that really I think that we're trying to empower. And so I think that's the first thing I would say is just use your voice. You know, and, and whether that's and becoming a member of BHA and, and we help you do that or that's with somebody else like or nobody you're just kind of making your own phone calls I like using your voice I think is the most important thing that you can do to kind of affect change at a, at a, at a national level yeah I mean I think that's awesome that's like <laughs> that's that's great I mean so 
there's this big rally now around the R3 movement, you know, recruiting, retaining, yeah. reactivating hunters. And I've talked to NWTF about it. And I mean, so how have you guys taken part of that or, or what's your guys' outlook on that? Is is it like, hey, I want to create more public lands so I can reactivate more people because access is not, is the biggest issue for people. But or, or what does that look like for you all? Yeah, you know, I think that I'd answer that in a couple of different ways. I think like the first piece is exactly what you just said. I mean, public lands and public waters are a place that you can go hunting and fishing regardless of you know, your income, regardless of who your parents are, who you know, regardless of your political affiliation. And so, you know, to me, you know, as our country grows and um, I think, you know, public lands are these great equalizer, you know, it's a place where anybody you know has equal footing. So super important, I think, in the R3 movement. Um, so there's that first piece. I think the second piece is just uh, really thinking about the next, like, I think, generation of conservation leaders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our demographics at BHA really buck the trend of many other organizations where 70% of our members are 45 and younger. And, and you know, the other, like, most of the other organizations, it's the exact, exact opposite of that. And so that's that next generation of leadership, which I think is important. You know, we just even having these conversations, whether that's about conservation or R3, but that's like, that's like next generational leaders. And so I think that's something that we're very, very engaged in is really trying to make sure we combine the sage wisdom of, of the folks that we've had that have been in the trenches and, you know, been a part of kind of like these conservation issues for a long time and combine that with like youthful exuberance. So that'd be that second piece. The third piece is really, direct to R3. Um, I think those other two are very important, but the, the third is really we're, we're kind of, we're doing two things. One is uh, our college club program. And so our college club program, it's all across the country. It's in 38 colleges now. And basically what that does is, you know, some kid comes to Montana, you know, it's like, oh, I came to Montana. I love it. You know, but I, I'm, I'm from Louisiana. I don't know the rules here. You know, hunting elk is much different than hunting deer. And so it's helping them kind of, it's somebody that's already hunted, but helping them get engaged, you know, in a new new landscape. But then there's the other side where there's somebody that comes to Montana or wherever else they went to school. And, and they're like, man, I, I love these outdoors, but boy, this hunting and fishing thing is kind of attractive. And I want to like, you know, I want to feed myself. And so um, these clubs are kind of geared towards those kind of brand new hunters as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so we do a, a program called Hunting for Sustainability where we take these kids out for a long weekend, um, you know, teach them some gun safety, teach them, you know, put some guns in their hands, they shoot, uh, they get uh, an opportunity to butcher an animal. Sometimes we've actually shot deer that we can butcher right there and then uh, uh, eat that night. Um, other times you got to use roadkill or even a sheep, but, you know, you get the <laughs> idea of how to butcher an animal. Yeah. Um, and so it's like a fast course. And so we've, that's our college club kind of piece. And then we've adapted that to really, there's this term called adult onset hunting, which I totally hate because it sounds like a disease. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it should be like, it should be like, like, like I don't know what it should be like. <laughs> I do <laughs> a better term. Like, yeah. Whenever you hate something, you always, should, you always should be able to have provide a solution. I can't provide a solution. But <laughs> anyway, it's like these people, you know, in their late 20s, early 30s that are starting hunting. Um, majority of that is being driven by the, you know, the foodie movement and people wanting to kill their own game, you know, and, and really go or full organic and and so we're doing like very similar programs of the hunting for sustainability but doing that with folks that are in their you know late 20s early 30s yeah they're brand new to hunting so we got programs in minnesota ohio idaho 
Montana. Um, you know, they're just trying to sort of galvanize that effort. And I think that, you know, when I look at the R3 efforts that have happened in this, this country so far, at least on the recruitment side, the majority of that has been, you know, geared towards kids. And I think that's totally awesome. Um, I think sometimes that stuff is geared towards kids that, you know, are already going to hunt. You know, my, my daughter is, son are immersed in kind of our lifestyle and I think having opportunities you know through programs is great but I think they would have hunted already um, mm-hmm. and then we have these programs that you know that are one-offs and there's like one event and the kid gets to go fishing in a pond which is awesome they catch those fish but then there's nobody there to take them you know um, after that event and so you know we're really looking at those demographics of 20s and 30s where once you teach them, they have the means, they got the money, and they got the transportation and the will to actually get out and do it. And so that's that's the part that we're concentrating on. I wouldn't say I would stop any of those other efforts. I think they're super important, but it's just what we're doing. That's how we're approaching R3. No, I love it. I mean, that's something that I would really like to get involved in, especially from the college perspective. I had the opportunity to take um, two or three of my buddies that had never been hunting before you know, grew up in Oklahoma, love shooting guns. I'm like, you ever go hunting? They're like, no. I'm like, why? Like, I have no one's ever taken me. And I'm like, do you want to go? And they're like, of course. I'm like, okay, like, let's do it, you know? And up there, I have, you know, within an hour, it's like over 100,000 acres where I can go and we can go forever. Like, we can walk forever and hunt. And man, down here, it's like, someone's like take me hunting i'm like i'm trying to figure out where i'm gonna go hunting like what do you what do you mean <laughs> so yeah, and i think that's, that's i mean i think that's an important reason why i mean really to get involved with the chapter as well right and mm-hmm. i think that there's there's definitely public land in texas i think you know and there's opportunities to expand those efforts um and then you know oklahoma's not too far away yeah um as you know um but I, you know i think that's a, it's another reason to you know to really engage yeah, with the chapters, you can find out some spots, and then I'd love to hear that you love you know, to get engaged with the kind of the college kind of groups because you know those kids are uh, you know just so energetic and the eyes are wide open, and it's, and you know you've taken those those friends of yours. I mean, you know what that what it was like. You know, it's really cool to introduce people to something new. Yeah, they, you know, especially later in life when they they didn't know it was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I'm going on a. I'm going on an elk hunt this over the counter in, in Colorado and this summer or this September. And yeah. I was wondering, do you have any, any uh, experiences with elk hunting out West? I know you guys are in Montana. And so I was going to, going to ask you what your experience was with, with stuff like that. Yeah. No, I mean, I've hunted elk my entire life. I haven't been successful my entire life, but I have killed elk and put them in the freezer. Um, I think my biggest advice to you coming from Texas is uh, try to do as much as you can for your lungs and legs. Uh-huh. Um, elevation is going to be a super problem for you, and that's just going to be something you're going to have to adapt to. I had a buddy come from North North Dakota a couple years ago to hunt elk with me in the Bob Marshall Wilderness, and he had a real hard time the first two days, and he totally acclimated and ended up killing a really nice mule deer buck, um, non-typical buck. But um, I think, you know, doing as much as you can to get your lungs ready and then, you know, wearing a, a weighted pack, um, I think is like this is super important just to kind of get your legs ready. Yeah. Um, there's nothing that prepares you for the mountains than the mountains. And so <laughs> you're going to have a tough time doing that in Texas. Yeah. Um, but, uh, do as much as you can, I think to get ready. Um, I think, 
you know, one of the great things about BHA as well is just a network. And you know, I haven't hunted big game in Colorado, but we've got a, you know, it's one of our, I would say, legacy chapters is in Colorado. It's one of the first chapters that we have. And, you know, it's our second largest chapter, and they're just crushing it. And they're also just, uh, uh, I guess, really uh, open and kind of, uh, of folks to, uh, like, provide insights. Um, you know, I guess <laughs> one of the things I would tell you is, is, is you know, the elk, like, be where the elk are, which sounds super simple. Yeah. Um, but if you're not seeing elk, man, you got to move. And, and, like, sometimes something looks so pretty, and you're like, man, it's going to happen at some point. But you got to go find them. I think that's the, the big one. Um, and, and part of that is being willing to, you know, put your camp on your back, you know, not having necessarily a base camp where you're like, you know, going in and out of that every single day. It's like carrying that stuff with you. So if when you do find them, you can camp with them and mm-hmm. we're at least close to them. And, and so I think, you know, being, being willing to move. And then I'm not a, I hate, well, I don't hate, I'll take that back. I, I, I have a hard time sitting and glassing, um, which I think makes me not as good of a hunter as I probably could be. So I think um, getting up and glassing, you know, I think is, you know, getting up high and and being able to, like, see a large landscape, especially in Colorado, I think you're going to be able to, you know, glass is going to be a super, super important thing. So um, get one of those little... uh, like a fold up little uh, pad that you can put on the back of your backpack and so you can sit on that baby and so that you're not transferring heat to the ground or the other cold the other way around and uh, more comfortable get some good glass and um, and look for those out because we have the advice that we give you I guess yeah. so I mean what do you think about you know technology advances like on X like hunt wise e-scouting and and really people even trying to do stuff like that with drones now. I mean, how does that make you feel? Because I know from my perspective, I love it, right? Because it's it's great because you can you can search everywhere. You can cover a lot of ground. You can If you hear something, you're like, I think that was right here. You know, that's great. But then again, it, it gives accessibility to everyone. And there's I feel like honey holes are now getting few and far between. Yeah, I mean, I think... Oof. That's a great, great question. You know, I don't know if you know much about Aldo Leopold, kind of the father of game management, um, wrote you know a book called Sand County Almanac, uh, and really kind of talks about ethics. And even back then, I think that was like in the 1940s that he wrote that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about the gadgeteers, right? And how the gadgeteers are kind of ruining hunting and like how like everybody had to have the latest and greatest and that was the only way they were going to kill anything. And, so he was thinking that back in the 1940s, right? And so yeah. we have the same conversation today. I think we'll always have a conversation about kind of new technology. Um, I think Onyx Maps in particular has revolutionized the world. Um, and while that may, you know, I think, you know, there may be some tricky, you know, kind of sneaky spots that I knew about on public land that I could get to, and maybe somebody else can figure that out now. It's also like it's opened up so many more opportunities to me that you know I just couldn't figure out um, without Onyx Maps, and you know the ability to have that in my pocket. I mean, my daughter and I went turkey hunting this year, and we were on public land, but it was right on the outside of private land, and there was no real markings, like no fences or anything, and mm-hmm. um, it was awesome to be able to like know exactly where I was, and so that I could stay legal, um, you know, and we could have a good hunt. And so I think like stuff like you know Onyx Maps awesome now extreme on the other side of that you mentioned drones you know i think drones 
as they've become more and more prevalent, you know, kind of for civilians and they've become cheaper and better, um, you know, more and more people start using that for, you know, scouting or, or potentially even um, hunting. And, and I think, you know, that's one of those ones I mean, it's like, you could sit at a bar and, and talk to people about ethics and everybody would have kind of different takes on things. I think this is one that just doesn't pass the smell test. Um, <laughs> it's just so egregious. You know, it's like if you wanted to hunt that elk in Colorado and you called up a buddy and he's like, yeah, I sent my drone up and I'm on this bull and I'll, you know, put you right on it. Like I don't, there's no fair chase of that to me. Mm-hmm. And so we at BHA, we kind of look at those issues where if it doesn't pass a smell test like that, it's just so egregious. It's something we want to address. And so um, we did work to kind of ban uh, hunting, ban the use of drones for hunting and scouting. Um, I think it's in 25 states right now that we've been able to do that and working through the state commissions and the state legislatures. And so you know, I think, you know, again, with all these technologies, and there's going to be goods and bads, and the ones that kind of just, just don't make sense, I think we need to, as you know, hunters and anglers, I think we need to um, really make sure we try to preserve kind of like the, the I guess, the, the chase of the hunt. And mm-hmm. I think that, as somebody explained it to me one time, and I think it's it a great analogy, is that you know, that animal doesn't care if you use the drone um, to go find it and kill it. Doesn't matter if you, you know, slept with that, you know, like and snuck up on that thing for days. Like that animal's dead no matter what, right? And so it's more about like like fair chase is more about is that fair to like the hunt is that fair to you as a hunter? And I think, you know, things that, that, that really enrich in the experience, like, you know, in general and great, and then things that, that take away from that experience, I think bad. And so I think as we look at technology, I think that we just need to think about it that way. And, you know, Again, Onyx Maps, you know, I talked about that earlier, man, that changed my world. And I think that's enriched, you know, kind of my opportunities out there. And I don't think it's taken away. And so uh, that's the kind of way we approach it. And I think that's where everybody should, like, think about it, at least. You know, I'm not, I don't want to dictate, you know, ethics. That's like trying to tell you you have to drink one beer and only one beer for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, you know, individual decision and really situational. Um, but uh, I think if, if we're all thinking about it all the time, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. No, I think that's a, a really wise perspective. It's just, I, I like you said, <laughs> you said, uh, passing the smell test. And to me, it just doesn't, my analogy would, it just doesn't taste right to me. That just, yep. it just doesn't, it leaves a kind of a sour taste in your mouth. So I'm glad that you guys are kind of taking initiative on that and, and, and making that, I hope obsolete <laughs> at some point, but I wanted to transition here. Uh, just wrapping up, uh, what are you specifically excited about initiatives in the future, things you guys are doing, uh, stuff that's just boiling up that's kind of just now coming to fruition at BHA? What what gets you guys going every day? Uh, that's a great question. So I think, you know, I mean, I think the stuff that gets me fired up is that BHA is really kind of coming to our own. And so, you know, we're becoming much more influential. So I think, you know, growth until now I think we've punched way above our weight. You know, we've got a, a great communications team. We've got amazing people on the ground. And so with that combination, we've been, you know, able to kind of use that megaphone to do a lot of amazing things. Um, as, we, you know, as we continue to grow, just that influence will grow. So I'm super excited about that piece. You know, those five states where we don't have chapters yet. And if anybody's listening from Hawaii or Nebraska or West Virginia, South Carolina or Delaware, get it together. <laughs> um, but uh, so I think, you know, and, and we're, you know, we have 
two provinces up in Canada and then one territory up in Canada covered as well. And so, you know, I think having full coverage is something that excites me and that excites me not just to have, have that geographic kind of range, but it's also that just means that you're having an impact, you know, in every one of those places. And when you want to do stuff that's at a bigger scale, you know, that, that definitely matters, but also at a local level. Uh, some of the stuff that I'm super excited about that's coming up is, is we're, we're developing a kind of a military outreach initiative. And so very similar to our college club program, um, you know, based around kind of military installations around the country and potentially around the world, it's really forming kind of these college clubs, um, very similar to the way I described that you know, before, but on the military basis. And expanding that kind of to be working with, you know, veterans um, as well. And so that's, that's we've got an a intern right now, Eric, um, he's here for the next three months, just he's... Uh, Fresh off of active duty, actually still active duty. I mean, it's kind of one of his last things he's doing before he gets done. And I'm super excited about the program that he's putting together, and then you know how it'll be implemented. So that's that's one of the probably is, is like near and dear to kind of what we're doing right now. Um, other than that, man, I think that you know I could talk about details like around the Land and Water Conservation Fund. You know, I talked about that earlier. It's been permanent re, permanently reauthorized. But it still has not been funded at a at a robust level, um, and so really trying to get funding there, and so that funding can hit the ground, and all fifty states continue to do that. I think there's a thing called uh, RAWA, Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which could be a billion dollars a year for conservation, mm. and really that's focused on uh, non-game species who traditionally haven't got much funding, and so the idea is you know an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You spend money on the front end to make sure that these species. You know, don't become endangered that way. You know, with they don't get listed on the endangered species list, which you know comes with a lot more money and a lot more regulations. Um, and at the same time, you know, these animals are you know they use the same habitats as the, the critters that we like to chase around. And so you know, what's good, I think there's a saying like, what's good for the bird is good for the herd, right? So mm-hmm. like you know, small little dicky bird, like if they're doing conservation around that, like that's just helping the overall kind of ecosystem. So. That's one super exciting. Um, I think you know our expansion up in Canada is is, is awesome, and our you know British Columbia chapter and Alberta chapter have been really uh, doing some great work. Yukon just came on this year. I'm really excited to kind of see kind of that expansion up in Canada and how that you know progresses. Um, and then you know I think that that really when you look at you know, some of these chapters, I mean, I mentioned Iowa earlier, I went and visited them this year, um, went to Oklahoma, Oklahoma has more, you know, public land, like you said, or at least publicly accessible land um, than maybe some states, but like these states that don't have high percentages of public land, like I'm, I'm excited about growing that estate, and so, you know, whether that's that's through, um, I just want to make sure that we're able to make that bigger, and and so that's, that's something I, I think that we can do. Um, and will do with this organization is really grow that public land the state. You know, you and I and everybody that's listening to this owns 640 million acres of public land, which is absolutely awesome. But not every every state is created equal when it comes to public land, and I think that you know, well, you know, the Bob Marshall Wilderness that that I cherish here in Montana that belongs to you just as much as it belongs to me. You might not make it up there very, you know, as often as I do. And so, how do we, you know, create more opportunities in your neck of the woods? And so, mm-hmm. that's something I think that that really drives me every single day. And I think at the very end of it is just, you know, leaving, knowing that we're kind of part of this experiment, Christian. And this experiment's only, you know, 130, 140 years old, and that's kind of, you know, really hunting like modern kind of the North American, you know, wildlife kind of model. 
and and I think you know it's great to be able to have an opportunity to just kind of play our role right now, and I mean our role, like no matter how big or small, and then you know pass it off to the next generation so they have the same things to work on that we do right now, and you know I have a long history with my family of being involved in conservation, so I'm just super stoked to be a part of it, and then super stoked to pass that on to my family um, when I'm done with that. Yeah, no, those are all. All reasons to be excited, and I'm I'm with you on those. I'm I'm back and I'm rooting for you guys, and soon I'll be I'll be part of you guys. So that's yeah, I'm I'm definitely I'm excited about the where you guys are headed and what you're doing currently. But if someone wants to wants to connect with you guys, wants to get involved, where is the best place on the internet to find you guys? Yeah, so our our website is backcountryhunters.org. Uh, real easy, or you can just you know type in you can Google backcountry hunters and anglers. Um, you know, membership's only twenty five bucks a year. You, know, you spend that on a like a half a night out with uh, your significant other, so um, not that much money. You get our magazine four times a year. Uh, another way is you can find us is on Instagram, uh, and then on Facebook. Each one of our state chapters has an individual. Uh, state chapter Facebook page and those are all closed groups so you have to be accepted into those groups but you're accepted very quickly um, and then you know you're a part of that kind of like that local chapter at least you get to find out kind of more about what they're doing but and I would say again like Facebook chapter groups Instagram um, kind of to like see what we're doing on a day-to-day basis and then our website is a plethora of information on a place you can become a member as well awesome so you guys are listening that's how you do it. No excuses now. <laughs> so there it is. Go fight, win. <laughs> I just, I wanted to close with just an an unconventional question, and I like to ask people just get a really unique perspective from everyone. Just wrapping up here. Why do you, why do you hunt, and why do you continue to hunt? What keeps you going into it? Damn! Look at that question. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I hunt partly because my dad hunted, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I grew up, you know, on my dad's back fishing in the duck blind before I could, you know, pull the trigger, hiking up hills, you know, elk hunting, you know, where I had to like literally step in his footsteps up snowy hills where I wouldn't, you know, it was so steep and deep, I wouldn't have been able to move. And so it's been something that's been a part of my life since I was a little kid. And so it's just like, I don't, you know, it's like part of who I am. I think that, you know, now as I, you know, have young kids and I feed, you know, them, you know, majority of uh, game meat, I think it comes down to kind of like a healthy lifestyle a little bit, but also sharing those traditions um, that you know, were taught to me by my father and by my mother and, and wanting to pass those traditions on. And I think that, you know, besides, you know, the, the hunting aspect and the chase, like that time I'm out in the woods with my kids, man, like, like we are, there's not, there's no separation between us and there's nothing distracting kind of that relationship that's going forward. And so to me, like, why do I hunt? It's partly so that I can have these quality, quality experiences, um, with these kids, you know, my kids are 10 and eight and they're both getting much more mobile. And so we're able to do many more things and the experiences that we have out there, man, I, I wouldn't change that for the world. And um, you know, hopefully they'll follow in the footsteps, but if they don't, you know, at least we're having those, those times to be able to connect out there. So, mm-hmm. um, I think that's why I hunt and why I'll continue to hunt and why I, and you know, why I hope my kids hunt as well. Yeah. Well, Lan, I really appreciate the conversation, uh, the wisdom and the insight. And 
I am uh, excited for what you guys are going to do in the future. Well, thank you, Christian, and um, um, good luck with the podcast. Um, happy to be on anytime, and, uh, you know, I think the thing I would leave you with that we talked about earlier a little bit was just that anybody that's listening to this owns 640 million acres. Like, we all live like kings, and none of that happened by accident, and none of that's going to be carried forward by accident, and it's, you know, you and I's job and everybody else's to make sure that we carry that forward, so... Um, that's our charge, and I think uh, you know, our legacy is very unique in the world, and it's up to us to keep it going. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it, and we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear, feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next.